0: I wonder how many of you have bought one of these lately. It's a dead and dying art. Do you even know what this is? It's a newspaper, a physical one. The one that leaves ink on your hands when you're drinking a coffee on a Saturday morning. That, this is a newspaper. This here is one of my textbooks. A History of Western Philosophy and Theology by John Frame. Okay, 700 pages of fun. It is fun, actually. We can talk about it afterwards. And this is one of my uh, kids' favorite... I'm a dirty dinosaur. I'm, I was tempted to read it, but I won't. But they love it. And I, I wonder, you know, as, as I show you these, and as we look at these, as we pick up a newspaper, we, we read it a certain way. And as we pick up a history of uh, philosophy and theology, we read that a certain way. And when we pick up I'm a dirty dinosaur, we really don't expect to read what has happened in our world in the past 24 hours. But I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine you open up, I'm a dirty dinosaur, you know. I'm reading it to, uh, I don't know, Johnny, he's four. You know, I'm a dirty dinosaur with a dirty snout. I never wipe it clean. I just sniff and snuff about. And then I just get frustrated. I get frustrated because it's not telling me what's happened last week in Bankstown. It's giving me no current news. So what do I do? I check it out because it's not giving me what I need. I'm reading it the wrong way. And a lot of times we have done that with the Bible and particularly with Genesis 1. We expect to read Genesis 1 as a scientific textbook. And therefore, we say, it doesn't work. Let's throw it out. But I would challenge you and I would, I would urge you to, to think that Genesis 1 is not necessarily, was not written to tell us exactly. The scientific method that God used with atoms and particles, it doesn't so much teach us of the how of creation. He's given us minds and the scientific method to figure those things out. More than anything, Genesis 1 teaches us the why of creation and the who of creation, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew scholars will say that Genesis 1 uh, is a song, it is a poem. You hear these constant refrains, it is good, it is good, it is good, and God said, and God said, and God said, it has all the marks of Hebrew poetry. And so I want to read it as Hebrew poetry, and I want to read it as it was intended to show us, not necessarily how, how long the earth, how old the earth is, but who created it and what is our place in it. And what is our place in it? And what should our our response be to this wonderful and beautiful God who out of no compulsion created you and me? You're a miracle. But we'll get there in a minute. So I want to show us three things. Or rather, I want to allow the story and the truth of creation to show us three things. One is creation shows us who God is. Creation shows us who God is. Creation also shows us who we are. But creation also shows us the goodness of creation. So who God is, who we are, and the goodness. God stands mysteriously, mysteriously. And we don't like that word, generally speaking, outside of creation. Listen to verse 1. In the beginning, God. I mean, there have been books and tomes and and so much ink spilt on those first couple words. In the beginning, God. He is not explained. There is no cause for him. There is nothing and no one that exists aside him. He is unexplainable. He is unapproachable. He is completely other. In the beginning, God created. And what he created was beautiful. I want to take us through the days again, and I just want to show us the symmetry, this, the beauty of this text. And there, there's, there's almost a, a, a really uh, de, uh, demarcation between uh, the first three days and the second three days, where in the first three days, God forms, and in, the, in days four, five, and six, he fills. I want to show you. In day one, verses two to five, what does he do? He forms light. Day two, verses six to eight, he forms the sky and the sea. Day three forms the sea, land, and vegetation, and then he looks at it. And in day four, he fills the star with, the, the sky with stars. In day five, he fills it with winged animals and sea creatures. And in day six, he fills the land with beasts and humanity. He created an orderly. And beautiful, beautiful, beautiful creation. And there's this one word, that, that word in the beginning, God created. That word created in Hebrew, I don't know how to, how to pronounce it. It'll be up here, I think. Uh, but it, it's just the word bara, B-A-R-A, transliterated, meaning uh, it take, you take a Hebrew word and you turn it into an English word. And that word is only ever used of God. There's another word for create that is used of humanity, but this word is only ever used of God. And what that shows us is that God created the world out of nothing. There was no pre existing matter. You know, the, the ancients, the ancient Greeks used to believe that, uh, that matter and, and the gods, or, or God really, the good, were coexistent eternally, so that the world was eternal. But here shows that, that the world actually has a beginning. And into that world of that philosophy, uh, uh, rather thousands of years before, then it's God created out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I've tried to create stuff. I mean, with my words, and that's hard enough. I mean, I have a four-year-old. I try to get him to close the refrigerator or to you know not not pee on the floor. You know, I try, but even that I can't do. And in His world, I'm pretty powerful and we try to create but we, we don't have this kind of power we don't have this kind of power i want to read you something from a an african 4th century uh, theologian called augustine he was a former uh, uh, sex addict uh, who uh, after stealing some pears became convicted he heard a voice and and he said uh, he heard a voice saying to pick up a book and read And he read the scriptures and he uh, was convinced of Christianity. And he wrote this many, many, many years after. I want you to sit with this for a minute. Who then are you, my God? What, I ask, but God who is Lord, most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, and most just, deeply hidden yet intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, making everything new and leading the proud to be old without their knowledge. Always active, always in repose, gathering to yourself but not in need. Supporting and filling and protecting, creating and nurturing and bringing to maturity. Searching even though to you nothing is lacking. You love without burning. You are wrathful and yet you remain tranquil. You will change. You will a change without any change in your design. You recover what you find yet have never lost. Never in any need you rejoice in your gains. You never you, 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 acqu- you never require interest. We pay you more than you require so that to make you our debtor. Yet who has anything which does not belong to you? You pay off our debts, though owing nothing to anyone. What has anyone achieved in words when he speaks about you? My holy sweetness. This is your God. This is your God, the God who is incomprehensible, the God who is wholly other, the God who is utterly Loving and utterly in control. New year, new me, no. But new year and a deeper understanding of this beautiful and majestic God who has called me into his family, yes. And he will transform us as we get to know him. So this God is not to be trifled with. There's this uh, story uh, um, uh, in that uh, C.S. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, the the um, uh, the Narnia tale, where Aslan is the lion, and there's this line in the movie and in, in the book where where they're talking about Aslan, this lion who represents Jesus Christ in, in form, and there's this little badger who's talking to the kids, to the four kids, and he says Aslan, oh he's good but he ain't safe. That was the Ebonics version. He said he isn't, but he ain't safe. (laughs) He's good, but he ain't safe. And this God that we worship here today, we may have come in here not even thinking of him, but he's holy and he is ferocious and he is magnificent and we get to be in relationship with him. But we live in a world, we live in a world that, uh, This uh, um, French uh, philosopher, Charles Taylor, says is an imminent frame. And what he means by that is uh, we live in this framed world, right? Where if we cannot touch it, if we cannot see it, if we cannot smell it, it doesn't exist. We live in this imminent frame where if it's not close to us, if we don't understand it, if we don't see it, it doesn't exist. And we live in a world and we are pressured in our culture to continually push God out to the margins, and we end up living truncated lives. Even as Christians, we live as atheists when we forget who this God is. That's who our God is. But creation also shows us who we are. Genesis 2-7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became A living creature. Do you know you're dust? You're dust. And I think one of the reasons why I love, love, love X-Men, right? Like, it's just just my thing. I, I grew up on it. I grew up on superheroes. The reason why I love it is because they're not. They're super. So they're called superheroes. And they're not. And it helps me to forget that I am but dust. But I want us to read Psalm 8, where it says this. The psalmist says this about us. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Check this out. You are both dust, fragile. You may not think you're, you may have just come from the gym pumped. You're fragile in the grand scheme of things. And yet, and yet, God gives us this glory and this honor. And he has created us, a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower. And he crowned us with majesty and glory. And we are, we are miracles, you and me. I was watching uh, this talk a, a couple of years ago, I think, and it was talking about the human eye. The human eye. And the miracle that the human eye is. Apparently, this is what happens in utero. Out of your eye, the back of your eye, about a a million optic nerve endings leave your eye. And at the same time, your brain shoots out one million optic nerve endings. Not impressive. okay? But what has to happen with number one, it needs to find number one. And what happens with 3,045 needs to find 3,045. Now, I don't know how many are in here. Maybe 150 or so. But I wonder if we split it in half and we all had 1 to 75 and we just bum rushed the room and we had to find our match. Just imagine that with 2 million people. Your miracle, your eyes are the most advanced thing, object optical lens. I mean, you know, uh, the photographers could debate me afterwards. I may be wrong. But there's nothing like the human eye. You are a miracle. You are crowned with glory. But this is what happens. Even as high as an honor as that is, and even as, 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 a, as a, a, a humbling as being made from dust is, what happens is we, we do one of two things. We, we tend to overvalue humanity. Or we tend to undervalue humanity. If you're a fundamentalist, you tend to undervalue humanity because humanity is vile. Because your Bible starts at the fall. Genesis 3. You don't have Genesis 1 and 2 in your Bible. So humanity is just wicked, dirty, ugly. And we tend to undervalue humanity. Liberals tend to overvalue humanity. If you're a fundamentalist, you think humanity is vile. If you're a liberal, generally, you tend to think that humanity is the greatest thing in the universe. But the scriptures say we are not vile and we're not the greatest being in the universe. God is. And we get to be this this thing now, glorious ruins that, that Matt talked about last year sometime but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. As you're going to learn, as we look at the story of God, we we can't look at each stage only by itself. They all bleed into one another. So yes, at this point in creation, we are only glorious. But soon after, a couple chapters later, we'll we'll learn that we are quite fallen. So we don't only learn who God is. We learn who we are, that we are glorious ruins, and that we don't need to overvalue humanity, and we don't need to undervalue humanity. And now, creation shows us the goodness of creation. After this, I'm finished with my intro, and then we'll get started. God does all things well. Did you notice that constant refrain? Verse 4, it is good. Verse 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, it is good. And finally, 31, it is very good. And growing up, I used to think that it was a little something like this. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was growing up, in your pants or in your shoes, there would be a little number that you would find. It was a mystery to me. I loved it. But all it was, was someone saying, yeah, this product passed the test. It was quality control, quality assurance. And a lot of times when we read Genesis 1, you know, it's the first day of the year, you're doing your read the Bible in a year, and it's the first one that you read, and you're tired, you were in the pool all day yesterday, and you, you're reading Genesis 1, and you think, oh, he's doing quality control. That's good. You know, God is, is you know, he has a, a short sleeve shirt with a brown tie, khakis. You know the guy. And he has a clipboard, and you're saying, it passes. Yeah, it, pa- it works. It passes. It passes. That's not what he's doing. That is the furthest thing. He is singing over his creation. He's saying this is good. The way that we sing and we rejoice after a good glass of wine or the way that we rejoice after you know, uh, being at, at this beautiful wedding or the way that we rejoice at the birth of children the way that we rejoice when anything is good. We say it is good, not just that passes the test. And God is singing. He's singing over his creation. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very, very good. Psalm 104. Blessed, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's winds, his ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep, With the deep as with a garment, the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. You shall not pass. (laughs) That's how I imagine it. Not, Not totally. So that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And on and on and on and on. This beauty of creation. It is majestic. And it is good. But we do two things. We do two things. We undervalue creation. Some of us. And others, we overvalue creation. How do we we undervalue it? How do we undervalue it? I think it, it, it begins from a poor theology, a poor thinking about creation itself. That's where it begins. And how does it show itself? How do you know if you undervalue creation? I'll tell you. You think Sunday is holier than Monday. If you think... That there is, that, that all of life should not be given. I'm not saying Sunday is not special as we gather as God's people. Absolutely, it is special in a way that other days aren't. But when we think it's holier, when we think we should act right on Sunday, but it's okay to not on Saturday, we're undervaluing creation. He has made all things good and all. Days are His. We also undervalue uh, creation by not taking care of ourselves physically. We, we seem to think that we are uh, spirits just encased in something called flesh. And I, I, I am, I am uh, 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 guilty of this one. Well, we tend to think that the spirit somehow is of a higher order the flesh, a carelessness towards creation care. Now, I'm not saying every single one of us is going to have the same amount of passion. I'm not saying every single one of us is going to, you know, uh, uh, leave all of our jobs to just conserve the earth. Some of us may have to do that. Some of us will want to do that. But do we play our part? Do we honor our places where we live and where we work by the way that we take care of it? Another way that I've noticed this coming out a lot, which I've mentioned, is we speak funny about ourselves. We say we have bodies. As if we are, you know, brains on a stick, walking around, and we we have a body. You don't have a body. You are a body. God created you with a body. You are an embodied person. You are a whole person. But, so often, I think probably for us, we overvalue creation. We take things that are good, like our bodies, like the beach, like anything good, like marriage, like ministry. We take anything good that was created, like relationships, and we make it ultimate. I've heard it said years ago that we take what is good, we make it God, and it ruins everything. And we're all bent We're all bent, our hearts are all bent this way to try to find a substitute for God. We take what is in our imminent frame and because our world says nothing can exist out of this frame, well, we need to find something inside of this frame to lift up on a pedestal to say, this is what is going to give me my identity and my worth and my value and my purpose. What is that for you? If you were to ask yourself, this question, if I just had X, I'd be happy. Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, I think I ask it every time I preach. But have you ever gone away and asked yourself the question, if I just had, mm, that spouse, that car, that kind of respect, that swag, i to walk into a room. If I just had kids, I would finally be made whole. If I just were married, I'd finally be made whole. If this church would just blow up, I'd finally be made whole. If we filled every seat in every stadium, then finally I would have purpose. This infects all of us. If I just had that toy, if I just had enough money, or maybe you have it. Maybe you're like, that's not me. That's not me. Okay, ask yourself this other question. What is it in your life that if it were taken away, it would not be worth living? If you say, you know, if I didn't have this, what's the point? What's the point? All everything, and, and, and Matt will come up next week and he'll uh, uh, really open this up for us, but everything that has gone wrong with the world in your heart and mine and across the nations stems from the fact that we have traded the goodness of who God is for the goodness of creation. Romans 1 says this, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. We, We take what is good, we take an O out, we make it God and everything goes to hell. Put to death, Paul says, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires and covetousness, that's greed, which is idolatry. And idolatry, when we think that idolatry is just somewhere over there in those countries where they worship statues and they burn incense, idolatry is in our heart. We burn incense every day to something. The Question, what is it? What is it in your story that says that thing is ultimate and therefore I'm going to burn incense to it? I'm going to give up my life for this thing what is it? We tend to overvalue creation. So I don't want to undervalue it. I want us to enjoy it. I want us to go to Coogee Beach and, and glory in it and look at the seas and the waves and the sand and the beauty and say, yes, God created us for this. He created us for enjoyment He created us so that we can enjoy His, do you get that? A lot of us think, you know what, God wants us to like it, but not too much. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing, listen, and nothing is to be rejected if if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, we don't need to undervalue creation. We don't need to put ourselves down, but we don't also get to worship ourselves because we worship this majestic God who has come to us, who has visited us in Jesus Christ. So, we learned three things in creation. I'm almost done. God is over and above incomprehensible, He is majestic, He is other, He's to be praised and magnified in our lives. He stands over this creation. Sovereign. Completely in control. Psalm 33 says that he opens up his mouth and stars come out. And stars come out. He is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. We're made. We also learn that we're made in the image of God. That we were made good. Good. That you're good, your body is good. Yes, we all experience our our quota of brokenness physically in our bodies, some more than others. But you were created good, your body, the material, is good. There is nothing inherently evil about matter and blood and sinew and bones, it is holy, it is holy work. You don't have a body, you are one. And creation, we learn, is inherently good, and that we are called to neither undervalue it or overvalue it, but worship our Creator through it. But I want to go back and just show us what we learn as we look at creation in light of the story of God, in light of that framework of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as we read the Scriptures well as whole, as we look at our world with hopeful realism, as we understand our story, and as we grow in our ability to share the gospel. Maybe you're here and you think, that's not my story. That's not my story. Whatever your story is, let me tell you, whatever your story is can only find its fulfillment in the gospel. This need that you have for achievement can only be accomplished in the gospel when Christ achieves the the most definitive work in your life: reconciliation with God. This need for sex and intimacy that you have, that you search in every other place, the the where that story finds its ultimate fulfillment is the gospel because you are made most deeply for intimacy with Him through the Spirit. You know, it was once said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Maybe you're looking, you know, for companionship. Maybe you are looking for wealth. Did you know, listen, did you know, that there's this promise in the scriptures that says when God wraps up this whole universe, when this whole story is, is 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 shut, and this book, volume one, is shut, he says, We will rule with him. In all eternity, we will be co-rulers with Christ of the universe. You are dying, you are killing yourself for a plot of land. Build a house and a home with 2.5 kids, whatever that means. And he says, You can have it all. Everything, every square inch of this created order is yours in Christ. Everything. And there's this picture in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, that, you know, there's this man in the desert. There's this man in the desert, and he is thirsty. He's dying. And to the left, he sees this beautiful spring of water. Clean, thank you water, whatever. Great water that will give back to the community. And then, over here, not Liam, he's, he's great. But over here, there's this, there's this mud some dirty water parched dry land and, 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 and this is what we end up doing when we don't live into the story of God this is what we end up doing we end up looking at that water and we say no I would rather drink this mud we you are selling yourself short when we don't grab hold of everything that God has for us in Christ and in this new year, do you want to continue going back? Or do you want to say to the Holy Spirit, even now, yes, yes, my story finds its completion in his. And I want to invite you, I want to invite you to that. If, if, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I want to invite you to know him today. I want to invite you to sing with us as family. I want to invite you to take communion with us, which is a a, a symbol of Christ's body and blood that was shed on the cross so that it's through him that we get to enter this story. So as we stand and as we sing, let me lead you in prayer. And let's sing our lungs out to this beautiful God who has made us beautifully well in this beautiful creation. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you again. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have called us sons and daughters of the Most High God. The God who created everything. The God who is over and above everything. The God who knows my sin and yet accepts me. The God who is ever-changing me to become more and more into the person, uh, to, to look like the person of Christ, my big brother. So to this God we pray, to this God we sing, to no other, because there is no other. Who can compare you? Yahweh, who can compare anyone to God? So we thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name.